You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole, the 602 Club, where I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And I am just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing, and so excited to have back with us the one, the only, the sublime John Mills. I am the Joker, destroyer of podcasts. (laughs) There you You go. It's not far from the truth. I mean, you have destroyed that seat you're sitting on because nobody else sits in there. When oh, I'll they destroy come anybody that sits yeah. in this seat. That's yeah. the thing. I know. This is my yes. seat. So uh, it's got your <laughs> your name placard on there. Uh, but um, we're we're going to be talking about uh, the other side of the Barbie Heimer with Oppenheimer this week. Very excited to get that going. But before we dive into this explosive new film from Christopher uh, Nolan. <laughs> Sorry. You can find us all over the place on social media. Uh, we've got Twitter at the 602 Club. We've got Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We're also on threads under the 602 Club TFM. I, we don't post there much because nobody uses that, but you can find us there. <laughs> you can find the entire network online at trek.fm. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And of course, you can go over to the listeners discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference and talk to listeners from all over the world about all of the shows we're doing here. You can go to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of our team. Make sure all of these shows keep coming to you. And if you love what we're doing, you can also help us out by subscribing wherever you're listening. That way you'll get our podcasts as soon as they drop. Share us on social media with friends. Word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast. And of course, you can also help us out by giving us a star rating and review on places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, and we even, you know, read those U.S. reviews of the uh, Apple Podcasts out here on the show to say thank you. We know it takes a little bit of time. So go over there, do that for us, and help people find the show. So a couple of questions. That kind of, before we even get started just talking about the film and everything, so much about this film comes in its presentation John, uh, which, you know, uh, IMAX showings are selling out. The IMAX 70 millimeter showings are like running almost 24 seven in places like Dallas, where, you know, you have one 70 mil IMAX screen. You've got all of these type of things happening. So I wanted to know uh, coming into this, how you saw this movie. Great question, because I tried to see it in 70 millimeter, but the, and this is where I sound like a terrible person. Uh, the only seats that were left sucked. And I just, I was like, look, I, I'm willing to make the effort to see something in 70 millimeter because Christopher Nolan, like, okay, it means something to him. And I'm like, I'm going to do what the director prefers sort of thing all the time. But I, uh, had to take my consolation prize and go to, there's this, um, small chain that I live near called Epic XL and they have their own 
uh, large format. It would be comparable to digital IMAX. And so that's what I went like. I went to their giant, you know, large format theater uh, to see it. That so it was digital. So I'm sure that Christopher Nolan wants to hit me with a wet noodle, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I live in the Portland area of the country, and there are no good theaters here. Really, there is no 70 millimeter at all. Uh, the only place in uh, Washington state, I believe that has a really good presentation would be about an hour and a half, almost two hours away from me. Uh, they have an IMAX laser, which I could have seen it in, but unfortunately mm. just not close enough to be able to do that. So I got to see it on your regular old IMAX, not the, you know, the official, uh, size screen, but I mean, you know, it's digital too. We're, 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 I, I saw the best I could. Um, which is just kind of your Limax, IMAX, which is still a great presentation for this film uh, because it's uh, doing the slight variations of IMAX format too. You know, you get the full and then you get the one that's slightly smaller. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, but I mean, the presentation was great. uh, I I thought Um, the, the sound was phenomenal. The picture quality was astounding as is with uh, Christopher Nolan films. Uh, and, you know, I would have loved to have seen this in 70 millimeter, but the place that showed it in 70 millimeter in Seattle had closed. And I don't think they're open yet again. Uh, and that's where I'd seen like Dunkirk in 70 mil. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, unfortunately Portland just absolutely sucks when it comes to theaters. So, well, I, you know, so long as we're talking about format and everything in the effort, I live also near a Dolby laser and it's it's at disney springs i live down here in in mouseville and it is frustrating that this weekend because it was at disney springs they swapped out oppenheimer at dolby for the haunted mansion which opened because i couldn't see oppenheimer the first week and everything and that was frustrating because these contractual things that they talk about are nonsense. It's just dumb. They've got to find a better way to negotiate these sorts of things and say, you know, it doesn't make sense to have Haunted Mansion in our best theater. People are going to pay the premium to go see Oppenheimer here. Even if people are, you know, the whole Barbieheimer, Barbenheimer, however you pronounce the thing, This is, you know, just from the get-go that this is a movie that demands the best possible presentation. And it's just frustrating to me that these contractual obligations box these theaters in where they can't honor that. Right. Well, and it, you know, I think one of the things where the movies are right now, it, it also just goes to show that having more premium theaters is better for theater chains. You know, because then if you've got more IMAX screens, you've got more Dolby Cinema screens, you have the ability to show more showtimes of something like Oppenheimer or uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, which are vying for positions right now. Uh, And, you know, I know it seems like Oppenheimer might actually be extended because they're making so much money. And I know that, you know, Mission Impossible is actually looking to possibly come back into IMAX once 
the contract of, you know, Oppenheimer's up. So it's like you see that this is actually really good for uh, theaters. It's really good for the movie industry to have more of these premium formats, which means that, you know, if you're a theater chain and you want to make more money, you probably should upgrade more of your theaters to these premium format theaters uh, because you can make more money and you can have more showings of all of these major films that are utilizing the bigness of these screens in a way that they're meant to be done. You know, in the way that George Lucas always talked about, you're making movies that should be experienced on the biggest screen possible because you're doing things on screen to which really accentuate and are accentuated by the size and the power of the sound system and all of that. Yes. And I think that... Because size matters, John. Well, you know, when it comes to something like this, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, just so long as we're talking about presentation and contracts and stuff like that, obviously Barbie is the juggernaut right now. And I think that the thing that I love most is there is a lesson here that can be learned about not being competitive with a movie that comes out at the same time, but to find a way to either assist each other or ride along in the wake. Because I will tell you honestly that the Barbie movie is the best thing that ever happened to Oppenheimer because it started out as a kitschy joke to have Barbenheimer but then people said, yeah, I'll commit to the bit. And they did these double features. And I can tell you, honestly, number one, it demonstrates that this whole idea of no audience crossover is nonsense, that people just want to see good movies that are good movies. There aren't people who are going to be like, I refuse to see this movie. If it's a good movie, they'll go see it. I'm not picky like that. I'll go see any genre, whether it's, you know, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible, The Godfather, whatever, you name it, right? If it's good, it's good. And I think that um, there is a lesson. There's a moment in time here where if the marketing teams pay attention, they can understand that straight competition and trying to destroy each other is no longer the way to go. Figure out how to capitalize on somebody else's success and ride along with them and you will enjoy success yourself. I think that has a lot to do yes. with a three-hour biopic, which, you know, boy, I'm pretty sure that the quantum mechanics crowd isn't the $500 million <laughs> box office crowd. That's a pretty niche kind of conversation. <laughs> no, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. We went and saw Oppenheimer with some friends on that Friday, and... The theater was jam-packed full of people because there were two big movies for people to see. I haven't seen the theater that packed in years. Yeah. And it was driven by the fact that you had people wanting to see both films. You know, because uh, I, I, we saw Barbie on Thursday, and then the Friday we saw Oppenheimer. And so you're catching people doing that they're trying to figure out which day we're going to go see this and which day we're going to go see this right and so that's the thing that you can learn one like you said two i think the other thing to learn is that people respond to original idea films you know look Mm -hmm. barbie is yes based off of something that has a lot of nostalgia to it especially for women but it's also original 
Yep. You haven't had any Barbie movies before, right? The same thing with, you know, Oppenheimer. It's an original story. It's it's a movie based off of somebody's life who's had a major impact on our world. And, of course, it's got one of the biggest, if not biggest, name in directing these days uh, attached to it. And so you do both of those things, and I, I think 100%, you know, those are the lessons that Hollywood needs to learn, I think, on top of, hey, <laughs> studios, I know it's going to cost you some money, but invest in more premium screen theaters and you will be making Buku's more money. And I so, agree. you know, I, you know, where I am here, there's only one IMAX in our area. The other one is down, I think, in the OMSI in, in downtown Portland. Otherwise, there aren't any others. And so it's insane. Um, you know, if you're listening to me, AMC where I live here in Vancouver, Washington, uh, you have a theater there at the Vancouver Mall that you could easily transfer one of the theaters into an IMAX, so do it. Never mind the fact that there's a science center near me that has an actual real IMAX screen that could be showing Oppenheimer, and they don't show commercial movies. And I'm from the DC metro area where an IMAX, yes. they, they yes. use the IMAX screens at the science centers. They were like, yeah, we love making money. Come on down here. And every time yes. a Christopher Nolan movie <laughs> came out, I would drive the extra 45 minutes to go out and catch yep. one of these things. And it's like, it's a gold mine. It's a gold yep. mine for yep. film buffs. Well, all of that said, uh, you know, this film itself has an interesting structure as many Christopher Nolan movies do. Uh, and I, I wanted to talk to you about how you felt like, because I know, of course, that editing and story structure is such a huge part of how you enjoy film. And, you know, using the Strauss confirmation hearings as a framing device, as well as the security hearing of Oppenheimer uh, and him trying to get his security clearance renewed – both of those things kind of create this structure that allows us to walk through his life and set up the stage for the movie. How did that work for you? Uh, did you like the the way that this was structured? And you f did you feel like as it's flashing back to different points in his life and moving through time like that, that it worked? Yes. This is the type of storytelling, I think, if you're going to tell a really long epic it works really, really well. And it has the added benefit of Nolan is just an absolute master at this by this point. But the entire structure of it being structured around the, the chain reaction, the whole thing is about building a chain reaction and the little things bouncing back and forth and the little moments bouncing back and forth and then it gets frenetic and then it gets big and then we have our big climactic moment and the reaction keeps going and then it dies down. But it's still it's still this this wonderful tapestry that gets woven. And I it's the same reason and you know what? I will bring in a, a completely um unrelated discussion point that star wars fans have all the time about whether you're going to watch clone wars in story order or whether you're going to watch it in release order where it bounces around i can tell you as somebody that prefers the release order thing i love the story structure of this because it's how life it's how memory works it bounces around nobody remembers their lives linearly 
you when you're telling the story of your life, you go, oh, well, yeah, okay, there was that. And then somebody says, well, what about this? Well, okay, yes, there was that too. And I think that what works best about it, I don't know if you agree or not, but like, I think what works best about it is the fact that Oppenheimer's world has color to it. Strauss's world is black and white and they cross over and they intermingle in a very explosive way. But Oppenheimer is the one that's moving between the worlds. He's the quantum, you know, he's, he's the quantum traveler in these two worlds here. It's both things. And so I think the story structure really reinforces that point. Yeah. I, I definitely want to hit that in, in just a second, because I think you're absolutely right. Something you said, though, triggered this idea because you talked about the fact that this movie is a, is all about the chain reactions that kind of set off this sequence of events, right? And so we're moving through all of the things that kind of lead to the moment where, you know, the bomb is created, right? But then, just like the atomic bomb itself, there's the fallout that comes after that. And so... You lead up to this crescendo, and yet there's still so much else to come because that's not the end. You know, the, the the explosion is not the end. The rest of the movie is about the fallout of what happens afterwards. And so, you know, this is one of the places where I think, you know, when we talk about a director being at the top of his game with his craft— Nolan is an absolute genius in creating structure, which drives the thematic elements, which has so much story resonance, which everything is working and firing on all cylinders to support what he's doing overall, which Mm -hmm. creates this very cohesive whole. And when you think about the fact that this movie is legitimately basically people talking for three hours. Yeah. They're talking in rooms. They're talking outside. They're talking in rooms. They're talking outside. They're talking in rooms. They're talking. I mean, like, literally, that's all this movie is, is people just talking. And the fact that it is absolutely 100% riveting the entire time is because of the way in which Nolan is interweaving these story elements with the thematic elements within just the overall structure of what they're trying to do in the first place, which gives even more thematic resonance to what he's doing. And so everything fits together in this beautiful puzzle piece of a film. And by the end of it, you're just like, I got to see that again. Because Mm -hmm. I got to kind of like almost deconstruct the puzzle as you see it again because you're really able to see how all the pieces are fitting together. Uh, I took my daughter to see this. Um, I gave – I was given the forewarning about some scenes that maybe a dad doesn't want to watch with his daughter and I gave her the the choice. I said, you you know, it's your choice whether you go or not. She's old enough to make that call. And um, so she decided to go. And what, what's interesting with what you're talking about is that I, I th- this is going to sound weird. I, I like I'm not even sure how to phrase it, except for the fact that it is such a joy to see a film that, to your point, is people talking back and forth that engages a teenager the same way that. An action movie or 
some other, you know, whether it's a Marvel movie or a popcorn movie or Barbie or anything like that, it engaged a teenager who knows nothing about quantum physics, who knows only as much about history as the school system has deigned to teach her at this point, fully engaged and asking questions afterward. And even, you know, just to, to share a funny story, when we were in the car ride home, I asked her what she thought of it. And she told me what she thought of it. And she said, but I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about in the first 20 minutes. And I, <laughs> I laughed and I looked at her and I said, that's okay, honey. You're, I know, but you understood what was happening. She's like, yes. I was like, then that part doesn't really matter that much. And she was talking about the math that they were talking about. She was like, what, what is even happening? I was like, oh, you'll get there. You'll get there. Don't worry about it. So. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really great. Um, I, I love, you know, hearing that because I think it goes to show that, you know, these type of movies can do what they should do, which is to be able to reach a very wide audience. And, and, and I think, you know, what Nolan is doing here, and of course we'll get more into the, some of these questions a little bit later, but the, the reason for making this film and having this discussion in the first place is because of the very important questions for humanity that come with this type of historical event. And that those questions are still questions to which I don't know if we've necessarily done a very good job of really answering um, ourselves because of where we are now. And so I love that, you know, your your daughter was able to not only be engaged in the film, but then asking questions. And it, it I think what it does is it allows somebody like that to be able to see that history is not only interesting and fascinating, but worth exploring, you know, and that to me, that makes this a huge win for a film if it's doing that for, you know, people like your daughter and just, you know people at large you know uh we could we could use a society that is is much more interested in in history uh mm-hmm. and so i think that's that's beautiful now you mentioned the idea of perspective with alternating between the color and the black and white uh and you know no one had talked about the idea that he wanted to convey both an objective and subjective perspective uh, in the film, and so that the majority of the movie takes place from Oppenheimer's subjective experiences, but then they had the more objective black and white of Strauss's kind of timeline. And how did that work for you? Did you feel like that what Nolan was going for came across on screen? I... I took it in a slightly different way. I, yes, I, I get, I get what he's saying there and agree. Yes. Okay. I get that. The way I took it was that it was basically saying Oppenheimer saw the big, like he saw the color, he saw the depth, he saw the, whether he appreciated it or not, he saw the beauty of things. He saw the complexity of life. He saw all the different layers and that's why he could be friends with people he didn't necessarily agree with or 
you know, there were things he was interested in, but he didn't subscribe to just one point of view, whereas Strauss's whole world, that black and white very much was fitting. He's a political creature. It's either this or it's that, and that's it. You're either on my side or you're my enemy. That's all that there is to it. And Oppenheimer was his enemy because Oppenheimer was not in lockstep with him and properly deferential to him and all of those sorts of things. And so I took it more intended or not that Strauss's world was a much starker, bleaker, colorless world, whereas Oppenheimer's life was dedicated to looking for things that had um, more substance to them than just the black and white. Yeah, I think that's a great way to read it. And I really like uh, the way that you put that, because I do think that that is such a when we talk about this idea of perspective, you know, one of the things that is beautiful about Oppenheimer as a character who, you know, I think the movie doesn't shy away at all from the fact that he's not the world's best person in any shape or form, but he is somebody who is completely open in his mind two different ideas to be able to explore an idea and and maybe pull what's good from it and then discard what he thinks is not good you know um and that is something like you're saying with you know the other side that Strauss kind of has where everything is this completely black and white where there is no gray or there is no uh really testing of of every idea to see okay is there merit here it like and and to ask those questions and and then do the 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 actual work intellectually uh like you know there's that wonderful scene where um you see gene challenging oppenheimer and he comes back at her about communism and he's like read it in the original german mm-hmm. right and she's like, oh, well, it's, it, it, it's not really about, you know, what it says. It's really more about how it feels, basically, you know. And but this idea of somebody who truly is willing to explore and wrestle with ideas as they're given to see what merit they have uh, is an incredible thing. Like, you know, to be that kind of open minded. Uh, and not just reject out of hand something um, because maybe somebody told you to or it's popular to do so, you know. And so Oppenheimer in many ways becomes this kind of almost renaissance man in this film because of the perspective that he has, which is not only able to um, have a, a, a very clear thought process from from the start, but. He's also somebody who's willing to grow as a person, change. You know, we see that also in the film, right? Like he's a person who grows. Yes, I I think that's a yes and no. I think what's interesting is I think the movie posits that he changes, but his getting back to the chain reaction thing, what I think is really interesting is that the the film seems to posit the idea and I think this is a valid one to explore. That a person can change without meaning to. We're we're used to, especially with m- movies, telling a person the story of a, a person, 
as there's a big crescendo and a moment in time where they suddenly a, a switch was flipped and things were different. And I think very much instead Oppenheimer speaks to the fact that it's a chaotic and unpredictable process. And is Oppenheimer different at the end of the film? Of course. Did he grow? I always assign intentionality with growth. Somebody making the effort to change in a certain direction. Whereas to speak to your point, I think I would argue that the movie supports the idea that while he changes, his growth is not intentional. It simply happens. And so it speaks very much to that chain reaction side to it. A thing happens, he observes it, he does something, he observes its effect, and he might alter or he'll move on or he'll discuss or something like that. But he doesn't do the action with the intention of changing. It happens, he observes reaction, and then it brings about the change. Like his his relationship with his wife. Does he ever really express remorse about cheating on her? That's debatable. Does he? Does he not? Or does he simply observe that it's something that hurt her and there's a part of him where he realizes, okay, this was not right. This was a bad thing to have happened. Therefore, it should not be an experiment that I repeat. No, I think that's a it's a good way to put it. You know, I think I think that I would say there are ways in which the character is clearly looking f- to grow and change because he's willing to uh, interact with all of these ideas. Right. You know, his whole is he is communist thing becomes because he's willing to interact with ideas and allow them to influence him. But I 100 percent agree with you. There are other places where, yes, either he doesn't change or that like you mentioned there are things that happen that lead to change that we weren't necessarily looking to allow that to happen his work on the creation of the atomic bomb is something to which i think in many ways it's almost like he was denying that it was going to change him because he was not responsible but it got to the point where he could no longer deny that he was and that's the thing that he can mm-hmm. never truly, at least in the way it's portrayed in the film, it's the thing that he can never truly admit to himself. It's one of the reasons that uh, Christopher Nolan made this movie is because he was so and uh, just struck by the idea that Oppenheimer actually never apologizes for the creation of the atomic bomb. Um and so it makes for this very complex character, this very complex person. Uh, and so – and I think even just the complexity of the ideas that we're dealing with in the film uh, that we you know deal with thematically and the questions they had to ask about whether or not we use this and all of that stuff, like what it shows is how this is – none of these questions are easy. So mm-hmm. I think that you're – uh, you know, explanation is 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 very well put, and I think you put that in together. What I what I'm saying, it's like you get this guy who's just incredibly interesting to read about, to watch a film about, because he's not one way or the other. He's just kind of all over the place in many ways, like you said, where it's all the atoms bouncing off one another. That's kind of who Oppenheimer is as a person, and so. I- 
I, I like that you call out about, you know, the bomb, because I think that what Nolan, like some of the strongest work in the film is when he's giving the speech to everybody at the end and he's saying, oh, I just wish we could have yes. developed developed it quicker and dropped it on the Nazis and everything. And what Nolan does with sound in that to throw out there that it must have, and we all know that it must have, affected him on such a profound level, what he had unleashed, even though there were scientists when Germany surrendered that were saying, okay, ethically, we got to stop doing this. We, we can't, we can't keep doing this. This has got to stop at this point because once it happens, it it's there's no going back. And that scene where he's at the, you know, the celebration, everybody's happy and celebrating and everything, and that roaring sound of the feet stomping and him realizing and hear, having that warble behind him which was interesting because it was very evocative when it warbled because it did it again in the film later. It was very evocative and I found it very fitting that Killian Murphy had that happen around him because it was very evocative to what he, what Nolan did in Batman Begins when Scarecrow's drug affected people. And this is yet another case of Nolan using a trick from his bag that he learned a long time ago. And he says, ah, I know how to do this one because he keeps putting more and more together as his films go forward. And it, it was so, it was so nice to see something, you know, an, an older trick from his bag, you know, emerge in something like this. I thought it was, it was, uh, it was very cute not to belittle the emotional impact of that scene or how it's used, but to say that, this is, you know, you talk about a director at the top of his craft, a director at the top of their craft will use the tools that work and won't feel the pressure to say, I can't do that. I've done it before. Nolan says it works. So that's how I'm going to do it. No, I agree with you because it is really so much about perspective too, right? Because what we're seeing is the internal perspective of a man who is greatly struggling with the thing that he's helped unleash on the world. And, you know, that that moment of him being able then to say what he knows the crowd wants to say, but has no desire to actually be saying. Yes. Uh, because he's now terrified at his place in history. Uh, and so I, I it's 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 awesome. And I think. You know, we I don't think we're look, we could spend an entire podcast talking about the performances in this film because pretty much everybody in Hollywood is in this movie. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, this is I mean, you've got Killian Murphy, you've got Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek. Kenneth Brana, you've got uh, Alden Ehrenreich. I mean, Tom Conti. I like this is insane the amount of people that are in this film, and you know, everyone is astounding in it. Like Nolan takes every single person that's in this film and gets their very best performance. Hands and down. 
And I think that speaking of those performances, uh, my daughter actually called out Emily Blunt and specifically cited uh, the scene where she's envisioning Oppenheimer cheating on her at the hearing and what she conveys in that moment. And I think that Emily Blunt winds up having a performance that I hope does not get overlooked by other aspects of the film. I think that she gives an absolutely masterful performance with what's happening. Um, I think that Tom Conti, I will call him out specifically because it would be so easy for somebody playing Albert Einstein to lean into some of the stereotypical um, uh, tropes or characteristics or whatever you want to say where, Oh, you're playing Albert Einstein. Some people ham it up. He becomes larger than life because he's Albert Einstein and Conti delivers a human being who is one of the few people that Oppenheimer can actually relate to. And so we, it's nice to see a film finally treat Albert Einstein as a human being. And I think Conti's performance has a lot to do with that. I think Matt Damon is great as General Groves. He's just so pitch perfect. It's so easy to forget a name like Matt Damon. It is so easy to forget that he is, in fact, a very talented actor. And um, I, I, you know, I'll just close out my my raves and everything. I agree with you. There isn't a bad performance in this film. Not a single one. I thought Alden Ehrenreich. I was so thrilled to see him, and I thought he was absolutely perfectly cast in his role. But I'll tell you, the guy that warmed my heart, that made me so happy to see him have an opportunity to really flex his acting chops again, was Robert Downey Jr. Was, he's not Iron Man. This is the Robert Downey Jr. I grew up with. This is the Robert Downey Jr. who did Chaplin, who did uh, Less Than Zero, who did all of these roles through the 80s and 90s where you're like, that guy's amazing. What an actor. And yes, he was perfect as Tony Stark, but he was Tony Stark for a long time. Tony Stark's Tony Stark. But man, Robert Downey Jr. coming out of the bleachers and just giving this type of tour de force performance again, where I forgot I was watching Robert Downey Jr. a couple of times. I was like, that's it. That's the guy. That's the guy that I remember. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think that he was phenomenal. Um, everybody else you called out to their just it, their performances. You know, there isn't anybody here that you're like, oh man, they kind of really let me down. They just didn't fit. You know, like everybody, like again, Alden Ehrenreich giving the performance of a lifetime here. The way in which he reacts when Strauss has been undone is phenomenal um but i mean you know this movie isn't what it is if you don't have killian murphy just giving Ugh. the performance of a lifetime if he doesn't win the oscar for best actor the oscar should just shut down because it, they're stupid uh because his performance here is so nuanced is so good and it all comes from so many times from just a look that he's giving that 
is worth a thousand words that he could say. And the way in which then he plays with every single other person on screen where he's making everybody better and they're making him better. It's just an incredible uh, job. And so, you know, I mean, and even too, I, you know, something where, you know, I, I think Florence Pugh really getting to play a different type of character than yes. she's played uh, before, uh, you know, this very uh, psychologically damaged person who knows that she shouldn't be in need of another person like this, but can't help herself. Uh, you know, just like every, everything about this was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, <laughs> Wes Anderson can make anybody want to be in his films. But I think, you know, Matt Damon even said when he was in couples counseling with his wife, he, he talks about uh, that they worked on him in the sense that he wasn't going to be working as much. But the one stipulation was, but if Christopher Nolan calls, I'm gone. And then Christopher <laughs> Nolan called. And but that's the thing is Nolan is using all of these people that you've seen in a variety of different places and and making them their best selves on film. And so and like you said, having them disappear into their roles. And that's phenomenal. Um I also think of the, you know, just one last thing, Emily Blunt performance there when she's giving her testimony and it starts off rocky and by the time it's done she's making a fool out of this prosecutor it's just great and so uh i i thought hands down like you know this cast across the board all of them could win awards for what they did here you know there is a criticism of emily blunt's character arc in the film that uh somebody shared with me that i think is nonsense um, where they said, oh, she's a, a weak, uh, you know, alcoholic woman who, you know, just at the right moment, suddenly she gets, she becomes a girl boss. And I'm like, if that is your read of her character arc, that is way off. This is a woman who, like Oppenheimer, is very complex, has damage, has these problems. But the fascinating thing about the marriage that they portray is the fact that she's as complex and flawed as he is. And you can see how a marriage is not story. We are so used to seeing storybook love, whether it's in a beautiful mind with the long suffering wife, with the, the brilliant man, or um, I mean, good Lord, Meg Ryan playing Pamela Corson in The Doors, where she's this long-suffering woman with this genius man, and it's so it it gets a little tired. Instead, we see a woman. She's been married twice. She had a husband die. She's she's taken off in the middle of nowhere, but she stays by him, and that's the strength that you see come through. That these people, as as difficult as it is for them to interact and relate to each other because they are so limited as human beings they still love each other and at that moment his wife will not abandon him she will be there for him because she knows that no one else will be and it's like that if anything is 
I, I'm not endorsing, you know, either of their behavior by any stretch, but you see how love comes in really weird packaging sometimes. Really bizarre. And I can't sit there and say, oh, well, she should have done this or she should have done that. She did what, you know, in terms of this character arc in this film, she did what this character would do. She did what this portrayal of this person would do. Not what I think they should do. Not what a therapist would say they should do. But what a person did who was like this. That speaks to the authenticity that all of these performances uh, come to. No, I that's incredibly well said. And I, I think, like you said, it is the barometer for which all of these performances, I think, are given. You know, that everybody is nuanced. Um, and I think they just do such a great job with that. Um you know, one of the things, you know, Nolan is not afraid to use his films to to say things to which have, you know, resonance with us today. I mean, that's why he makes many of the movies that he does. You know, I think, of course, you know, of his Batman trilogy of talking about different things uh, that were going on in the world at the time. And here I think he's also doing that when it comes to this idea of free speech and the way in which we're seeing that Oppenheimer – who does develop a conscience about atomic weapons and specifically works towards not wanting to escalate an arms race because he sees what could happen with humanity being damned in public opinion by people like Strauss who just want to shut down that speech because it goes against what they want. And... You know, which is, you know, portraying Oppenheimer as being a man who has always been willing to hear all sides of the argument to then come up with what's actually best as opposed to somebody who's not willing to hear an argument at all and just desiring to, you know, be the one who's at the top, be the one who's in power by whatever means necessary uh, and shut down any speech that gets in the way of that. Uh was pretty fascinating to watch. And I think he does an absolutely phenomenal job at showing the danger of that type of thing happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it shows that political pressure and science don't always get along the way that you think they do. And I think that one of the great moments is when Rami Malek as Dr. Hill comes up and just yes. absolutely blindsides them as far as what his testimony is going to be. And that speaks to, well, you have a scientist who comes along and says, oh, no, hey, Oppenheimer, bad. And we're all pro-Strauss, all, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you find out that not all the scientists agree. And it takes somebody coming in and making a surprise attack in the middle of the hearing to suddenly have everything go haywire. And it's it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And even having the, the footnote at the end that it's a junior senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy, that is one of the three that winds up swinging it against uh, Strauss. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it, I mean, I think what he goes to show here is that 
just because it's the popular opinion of the time doesn't make it the right opinion, you know? And like you said, with the idea of, you know, saying there's a consensus in science when that might not be the case, you know, because it, it helps whatever ideology you're trying to push. I think the movie does just a phenomenal job of saying what we should do is follow the truth of the matter, regardless of where the truth leads us. Let everybody have a seat at the table. It's yeah. it's, it's the old Athenian, you know, uh, a form of ideas. The, the The whole theory is that if everybody gets a chance to speak, the bad ideas get destroyed because mm-hmm. they can't yeah. hold themselves up yeah. in, in front of the good ideas. And that's the whole idea of they couldn't argue against Oppenheimer for two reasons. One... Honestly, he was right about non-proliferation right. Yeah. and where it was going to take us. Uh, I mean, you know, hey, flash forward several decades, was he right? And then number two, um, if he was wrong, then, you know, like the only way they could stop it was to to try to just muzzle him. And it's like the way they muzzle him is by going after him for things that had nothing to do with what he was talking about, right, right, for that policy, yeah, and it's it's such it's such a it's such an indictment, really, of that whole political game mm-hmm. of how that works, and that's again to get to get back to just real quick for performances. Alden Ehrenreich, the way he plays that moment when yes. Straw suddenly realizes that this guy, he was like, oh. I'll tell you how it's done, kid. And then he suddenly realizes the kid flipped the tables on him in such a way that his fingerprints weren't on it, which was exactly what Strauss was saying. What, like the look he gave was so masterful of, yeah, you know, just that, that Cheshire cat look of, I gotcha. And neither one of us is going to say, I just beat you because you can't admit it and I can't admit it, but you know, I just beat you beautiful moment beautiful moment but again speaks to yeah the dirty side of the political discussion yep. and how it muddies the water of truth no well i mean 100 percent. i mean that 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 and that i love you bringing up that moment because it really does encapsulate kind of so much of you know what we've been talking about here on top of this you know obviously this film is dealing with the ideas of the the major questions of morality of doing something like this of what happens when we open pandora's box when we rub the genie's lamp it's like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube when theory becomes reality it's the same thing that jurassic park asked right which is you know you're so worried about whether or not you could you didn't stop to think of whether or not you should and those questions are the same type of questions that, you know, we're beginning to experience all over again when it comes to the idea of Pandora's boxes like AI and that kind of stuff, um, where we're creating this world which we have no idea the repercussions that are going to come, but we can see the possibility of those repercussions being absolutely 100% terrible. And I just... I appreciate that we're making this movie at this time because humanity needs to constantly be reminded of our own stupidity. 
We have a tendency to do things without thinking of the consequences. Yes. I would say I would say that your thesis has a lot of basis in uh, historical fact for sure. And I think that to speak to those sorts of things, it is timely because you have to ask when things like generative AI come up, who was sitting in the room? Was anybody sitting there saying, I don't know, should we do this? Is this really something we need to put out there? Or is this something we should, you know, find find a way to, you know, let, let's, let's sit on this for a hot minute. But then, of course, the counter-argument being is Strauss's counter-argument. The Soviets are doing it anyway. Why wouldn't we do it? The other guy's going to do it. We should do it first. Well, why should we do it first? Because we, they can't do it first. Why can't they do it first? Because if they do it first, then we didn't do it first. Yeah, but some... What, so what's the, because somebody's going to do it, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, you know, like, or is right. it, you know, like you can talk yourself yep. in circles with all that sort of thing. And then the next thing, you know, you know, to your point, think about everybody was freaking out about deep fakes years ago. Mm-hmm. Deep fakes were terrible. Deep fakes were awful. Well, now, so long as we can get Luke Skywalker showing up in season two of the Mandalorian, ah, it's not so bad. It's okay. It's okay. Right. Well, or, you know, I, I remember, you know, uh, a few years back, you know, they were uh, Adobe was showing off a new feature that was going to be in audition, which was going to allow you to if you had forgotten to say something, it would it would sample the entire recording and then allow you to type in what you wanted to say. And it would be you. Mm-hmm. But you didn't actually say that. And then they didn't use that feature because of how dangerous that is. Because then you could literally make people say whatever it is you wanted them to say, and how would you know it wasn't them? And um, so, yep. again, you're thinking about these things to which you, the, I mean, these are reality-shaping things, right? And when you can't trust what you can see, hear, taste, and touch, like you're in a big world of hurt at that point. And the, these are the type of questions I think that we are being faced with in the world that we live in now, which are the same type of questions that, of course, they were having to wrestle with then about if we do this, what happens? What have we unleashed upon the world? The 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 conversation, and I love the fact that they kept coming back to the moment and showed how Strauss completely misinterpreted what it was that was said or why Einstein was walking past him without saying anything. And I'll butcher the line because I've only seen it once. I'll see it many more times. But when he says, you know how we were wondering whether we would destroy the world. Yes, I think I might have. Like that. That and seeing Einstein have that realization of, oh, wow, maybe we did. Because Einstein, again, was the one who wrote the letter. And he himself, if I recall regretted writing that letter and it was it wasn't you know the first the first atom to go off is that letter and it leads to Oppenheimer leading the project and it leads to the atom bomb and it leads to the world changing forever and you know they don't even really go into everything they don't cover the fact that there were two scientists who died of radiation poisoning um 
you know, obviously it's three hours long. You know, there's only so much you're going to cover and the focus is on Oppenheimer. You can't go down too many rabbit holes. But even the fact that there's, um, you know, there's so much radiation and everything, background radiation now with all the atomic testing that we've done that countries are now trying to salvage old shipwrecks because they have pre-radiation uh, minerals in them. And it's a better type of steel to use for, for different things. It's like, well, how irradiated is the world right now? Like, hey, what does that have to do with everything or all these different statistics that we see? What's going on, man? So it's like, uh, you know, it's so wild. Maybe we did destroy the world. Like, wow, what well, a thought yeah. to have to live with. Well, and, and you know, like so many of the films we've talked about in the 602 Club and so much of history, which really comes down to the ways in which we as humans play God and the repercussions of usurping our place tend to be catastrophic mm-hmm. in ways to which we can't even imagine, unfortunately. And so, again, I think that this is the type of film that is so important for raising those questions, asking those questions, and reminding us that we need to be asking these type of questions. Because when we do things without actually thinking about them and only go off of feeling, we're in a place where we are most likely going to cause a world of hurt uh, that we can't even comprehend until it happens, and then it's too late. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... I had to ask you about this because, you know, a lot has been made about this film not using any CGI. Uh, And so how did that work for you? Did you feel the full brunt of the explosions? Did you feel like, I mean, (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the test at Trinity for the rest of the year and many years to come. That was an absolute stunning use of sound and light and editing and everything um in terms of the you know quote unquote lack of cg i didn't miss it i mean if it looks good it looks good i that you could have told me that everything was done with cg and i'd be like wow it looks good look if you can get the effect and it works use whatever tech makes sense and one of the most beautiful, most interesting uh, visual films I've ever seen is um, The Fountain with uh, Hugh Jackman. And that that used some uh, visual effects techniques that were really weird and, and unexpected. Um, and so, no, I, I didn't miss CG at all in this. Did I look at it and it was like, oh, wow, I can't believe they didn't use CG. No, I was just like, wow, that's pretty. Wow, that looks great. Yeah, I think you you said it so well. Look, this is all about doing what, what works for us for the film. And that's all that matters. Does it work for the movie? And you use the techniques that work best to bring the vision to life. And I think that there is such a tactile nature to this film Even, you know, we talked about the way it's filmed in the first place, you know, um, the lighting that's used, the cinematography, everything about this movie makes it feel real, but also it has this almost historical documentarian feel to it as well. All of this is intentional, and I think it all works perfectly to make this film come to life, 
which you also mentioned, I think the music by Gorenson and the sound design specifically also do that in a way that is a masterclass at, at making these things fit the film itself. The one thing I'll say is there are people – I read an interview recently where somebody was very dismissive of auteur theory. But you want a very clear case of modern auteur at work. Christopher Nolan changed his director of photography and we it still looks like a Christopher Nolan movie. I If you didn't tell me that uh, Ludwig Gorenson – did the score for this. I would have thought it was Hans Zimmer who did all of his other scores before Tenet. That is not to slight Gorenson in any sense. I think it's a wonderful score. I think it's a terrifically done score. I love the score. But you have a director who is very clear about what he expects to hear and what he thinks is going to work for his vision. That's why I say... If you if you had cornered me without looking at the credits and said, who did this score? I'd be like, I, I Hans Zimmer, I guess. It sounds like that. That is all to say that if you have somebody with a very clear vision behind the camera, or rather heading the project, I should say, they will get people, whether it's actors, actresses, people behind the camera, sound designers, uh, composers, to deliver what they want and need for their film. That's why the score is so good, is because he got somebody who understood what he wanted. And it is a terrific score. I, I will be shocked if this is not up for best score in all of those different awards shows that are going to be coming up. Yeah, I mean, I can't add anything to that. I think 100% everything about this works. I mean, it it's exactly what the film needs, and it fits perfectly. Uh, and just having listened to the score specifically, you know, outside the film, it's also enjoyable on that front. Yes. Uh, so I could not be more happy with just how well Nolan is able to craft a film from every standpoint, you you talked about the idea of our auteur theory. Um, I think Christopher Nolan shows that 100% it's still alive and well. Uh, and there are very few of them in the world. I was talking to a friend of, of mine and I was saying, you know, the only person and I believe that is anywhere close to Nolan and filmmaking these days is Denis Villeneuve. Uh, his films like Dune, Blade Runner 2049, uh, Arrival are these type of films where we are clearly making movies for adults by adults. And, but he's the only one who's even close to that, you know? And then after that, it maybe is Zack Snyder, but like, just, you don't get people like this who are just making these films where, Literally every single aspect of the film is working together to tell every single part of the story and bring it to life. And that's something that just that's why so many films just don't work, because there's something that just doesn't quite work with the rest of the structure. We are used to seeing 
And it, this is where I, where I always qualify. Quote, unquote, golden age of Hollywood was exactly what the modern landscape is. A board of directors slash producers, whatever, sitting there. I want this type of movie. The the kids want this. We're going to make this type of movie. So we have Marvel films. We have DC trying to imitate Marvel films. We have people trying to establish, uh, you know, uh, you know, connected universes. Blah 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 blah. It's all commodity, and I would say Tarantino is part of this conversation as well. I Good know point. it's a Tarantino movie. Like it doesn't matter. Anything else? I see Tarantino. I'm like, okay, I know what I'm getting. And if somebody signs up to work on a Tarantino movie, they know what they're going to be expected to do. And, um, you know, Nolan obviously is the same way. I think that we, who especially Gen X, were very fortunate to live through an era of auteurs. Is that era fading or is it going to stay alive thanks to the success of things like Oppenheimer is the question, right? Every time an Oppenheimer is wildly successful, does that buy somebody else time? Does it buy somebody else an opportunity? Or does it simply mean Christopher Nolan's next movie will get greenlit? That's what I always wrestle with. Is it simply a benefit to yeah, him and his career? Question. Or does it benefit everybody? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, I mean, you guys are talking on house lights about, you know, Brad Bird, and obviously you see a director who rose through the ranks and then hit a snag, you know, and never really truly recovers because of it, I think. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, I do want to ask you one more thing before we get to our ratings, and, and you mentioned early in the film about taking your daughter, and we do have those intimate scenes. This is the first time that Richard Nolan has had, uh, I would say, very graphic sex scenes in his movie, and I wanted to ask you if you felt as though it was actually necessary for the story and what it was going for, or if we could have you know, trimmed that down a little bit and made it less graphic and still got the point that Nolan was going for? It's both yes and no. And what I mean by that is, artistically speaking, the only time we see Oppenheimer completely vulnerable and we associate vulnerability with nudity, that's why horror movies always have people having sex and naked in the shower when the killer shows up, because we know that when we're naked, there's nothing between us and whatever's going on. I mean, and that's why they have that show, Naked and Alone. There right? you go. <laughs> or was it? Yeah. I mean, but but seriously, the only time we see Oppenheimer, lack of a better phrase, stripped down of all of his defenses are with her, which therefore also speaks to the fact that even though he couldn't be with her, she was the only person he was ever completely vulnerable with. Even his wife, he was guarded with. Everybody else around him, he was guarded. That's the one person that he was completely, uh, you know, there was nothing between him and her. And I think that, do you need to do that to show it? Uh, you know, you could debate. Need? No, I'm sure you could find another way to show it. But it is very common visual language 
to throw that in your face and be like, this is the most vulnerable you're ever going to see this character is only with this person. And, and by inference, he's the only person that she's going to be completely vulnerable with too. So I think artistically it works, but like, do you need, need it? Like would the film have fallen apart without it? Probably not, but I'm not going to ding it because I think that it, it worked for what it was. I actually made the joke going into it um, because in the marketing run up when they're doing the interviews, you know, Christopher Nolan said, or somebody said, Oh, it's, it's more nudity than he's ever had in his films before. And I laughed and I said, what, like 20 seconds. Cause nobody's ever been naked in his movies before. I don't think. And it's like, so, you know, and, and yeah, I mean like they made such a big thing of it. I'm like in a three hour movie, it was like, it was a flash. It was, you know, it was like maybe what three minutes of screen time total. And only one, you know, only like half of that was in flagrante delecto. So it's like, is it really that big a piece of the film? Eh, not really. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I did feel as though you could have shot it in a way that, gives us the impression or you know obscures more and still had the same effect um but i think that obviously what you said and the reason for doing it thematically for the character definitely holds up um so i i guess i probably would have appreciated more if it was just more obscured uh you Mm -hmm. know is shot in a way where you know maybe that scene upstairs you're shooting more from the back you know and so you're not Mm -hmm. seeing you know everything there florence and then um finding a way to uh you know obscure somehow in that scene in the chair although i think that scene in the chair like you mentioned when they're talking is is that way because they're kind of laid bare before one another and yet the way that he is sitting shows you that he is closing to her Mm-hmm. He is not mm-hmm. completely open anymore, whereas she is completely open still. And yes. so there's that visual language that happens there in the movie to give you those, those that aspect. So, uh, you know, um, it, it's it's one of those things like, again, it, it's one of those places where I feel like, you know, in a film, you you can actually do uh, nudity very well. You know, you obviously I, I always think of. The ways in which it's used in something like Schindler's List very specifically and on purpose to drive home very important points in that film. So it, I, I think it's legitimate. Um, and I don't think that this is gratuitous on purpose for any reason. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I can't complain about it too much. And I'm, you know, it's it's a very small part of the film. So, it, you know, I'm not saying any. I'm not going to say that. So. All in all, John, uh, you know, I think we've had nothing but good things to say about Oppenheimer, and that leads me to the question of what you are going to rate this film. That's five stars. I've talked to plenty of people, um, two or three, where they their reaction was, uh, I heard somebody call it mid. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that's that's fine. It's not for everybody, I guess. But I walked out of this and I said, I just watched art. I just watched 
art, how did I watch art on a scale like this? I, I was, uh, I was amazed on a, just on a technical, even if I hated everything else about the film, it would have a four because the technical skill of everybody involved in this film, of every performer, of everybody working the sound design, of everybody top to bottom, the technical aspects of this film are breathtaking. And then the rest of it is just cream. So, yeah, it's a solid five. This is, I'm a Nolan fanboy. I get it. I love practically everything he does. But I very much subscribe to the theory that sometimes there are filmmakers that they just, George Lucas is one of them for me. They are just plugged in. I'm in the same wavelength they are. They're speaking the language that my brain understands no one is obviously that guy. Am I blinded by that? Sure. But I mean, it's like, that's like sitting down and it's like, my God, this is an incredible right. omelet. Well, I don't like eggs. Well, I can't help you there. Right. Yeah. But I can tell yeah. you this is an incredible omelet. So five stars. You know, I'm right there with you. I mean, this is clearly a five star film to me. Um, and I would say that it is maybe the most important film so far of the 21st century when you just think of importance of film. Yeah. Because I think that this is a movie that stands the test of time because the questions and the thematic elements that it's raised. So not only, like you said, is this just pure art when it comes to all the technical elements, the way the film is crafted, how everything works together, but this is also a movie that will continue to ask questions that are going to be important for humanity Unfortunately, I think till the rest of time. Uh, And so, therefore, this movie will most likely, of all of Nolan's films, probably be the one that stands the test of time beyond all the other films that he's done in many ways because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it my favorite Nolan film? You know, I think I would probably still put Interstellar as my favorite Nolan film of all time. Same. I, I can't, I, yeah. Inter, Interstellar in the Nolan library of work is sort of like Captain America, the Winter Soldier in MCU. <laughs> yes, like, that's a good point. Will anything topple it? it? I'm, I'm laying odds Probably that not. it's going to be yeah. real tough for that to happen. Yeah. Real tough. So, no, I, but do I love this film and do I think it's astounding in every way possible? 100%. And I could not, recommend more that people go see this film uh and see it on the biggest freaking screen possible uh because you will you will absolutely not be uh disappointed as a person who prides himself on being a cheapskate and complains every gosh darn time he goes to the movie theaters about and the believe me he does nowadays. behind the scenes folks i promise you oh i don't i don't behind the scenes <laughs> i complain constantly <laughs> to everybody about how expensive movies are it's ridiculous but this is worth the upcharge pay yeah. the extra dollar or two to go see it in the best presentation possible you'll thank us you will absolutely mm-hmm. thank us yeah Nope, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, so, John, if you know people wanted to catch up with you, talk about uh, Oppenheimer, what else is going on, where would they find you? Gosh, just look for Kessel Junkie out there in the wilds of the internet. And, of course, I have the most fun on Letterboxd, where 
we can just talk about movies because movies are awesome. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network uh, co-host on two regular shows. One is called House Lights, which, Matt, you mentioned earlier, where we look at the work of directors by different categories. I co-host that with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser. And, of course, you can find me co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with one Mr. Matthew Rushing himself. Well, I do hope everybody will check that out. You can also find me on Owlpost over there on the Nerd Party Network talking about Harry Potter. Did that show with Dre Kaufman, and we talked about every single chapter of that series, one chapter at a time. I'm on social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 so just search your social media of choice and you'll probably find me there under that moniker. Uh, on the network when I'm not in the 602 Club, got a lot of other shows. People know, of course, Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Artificial Tango, as well as Saddle Up. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 